Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. My name is Todd McLaughlin, and I will be your host. If you would like to learn more about our upcoming live stream yoga classes, workshops, teacher trainings, and or our online yoga studio, please visit us at nativeyogacenter.com. Thank you. Sit back, relax, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome. Today, we bring you a special guest, Dr. Michael Shea. Michael is a friend of mine. He's also one of my teachers, and I have great respect for his career path and life work. Michael J. Shea is one of the preeminent educators and authors in the field of somatic psychology, myofascial release, and craniosacral therapy. He leads seminars throughout the USA, Canada, and Europe. I highly recommend go to his website, shayheart.com, spelt S-H-E-A-H-E-A-R-T.com, to visit him and learn more and to see what upcoming workshops and trainings he has available. It is without further ado that I'd like to welcome you, Dr. Michael Shea. Welcome, Michael. So great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Todd. It's always good to be with you and speak with you and hang out with you. Oh, man, I really appreciate that. Um, I am curious, how did you first get involved in the field of healing and therapy? Uh, Well, that's a good question. Um, I just turned 71, and my whole journey started with the healing dynamic. Uh, shortly after I got out of the army. So that'd be when I was like 21. Wow. And I was morbidly obese. Um, I needed a lot of help and I was really, really depressed. And uh, my sister uh, invited me to New York City. She was actually living in a raw food commune. And it was through her help that, you know, I started, you know, getting my weight regulated and I started eating a really, uh, well, it was a raw food diet. And I actually then went on to Boston to study with Ann Wigamore at the the Hippocrates Health Institute in Boston. Uh So I was able to really kind of straighten my life out, but I had to pay the rent. And my sister and the other people in the commune said, look, you don't have any income. We're going to teach you a massage routine you're going to do it on us and that's going to be your share of the rent. And I started doing it and they said, wow, you're really good at this. We're going to send you clients. And all of a sudden I was working as almost a full-time massage therapist at the age of 22 in New York city. Oh wow. Doing massage off the floor. It was awesome. That's how it started. That's really cool. Is that before the whole regulation of the massage profession in terms of licensing? Uh, at that time, that's correct. Uh, Florida has had a, a licensure since 1943. I was uh-huh. in New York. There were only 12 uh, AMTA, that's American Massage and Therapy Association, approved schools in the entire United States. Wow. 12. Wow. And a lot of them were in Florida. So I realized it was time for me to take the next step. And I moved back home. My, my parents were living you know, down here in Palm Beach, and I moved in with them, uh, made a nuisance of myself. My father <laughs> threw me out, and my mother drove me down to 
<laughs> the Lindsay Hopkins in Miami, and I, I went to massage school. It was just the wildest ride I could possibly imagine. Oh man, that's so classic. Um, that makes me think right away. Um, I had the, the privilege of doing massage school at Educating Hands in Miami in 2000, um, with a woman named Iris. Did, have you worked with her and met her down there? Iris and I went to school together. We were classmates at, um, Lindsay Hopkins. Yeah. She's an amazing woman. She is amazing. I really like Iris a lot. She is great. That's yeah, cool. Good school too. Oh man, that's awesome, Michael. So, um, so you said that was you were twenty one. You said you just turned seventy one. So you you've been practicing for fifty years now. Uh, yeah, just about. Yep, yeah, just about. That's quite an achievement. Do, would you have guessed when you were in your early twenties that you would be continuing with the profession for this long? Um. Todd, I had absolutely no aspirations. I was just trying to live one day one day at a time. I had no idea where this was going. I liked the job. I liked being self-employed, and I liked having a little bit of money in my pocket. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I, I think it's probably hard to, to not feel that way in our 20s, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, the other thing too is that you know I, I do have the opportunity of um, because we both live in or live near or in Juno Beach. You live in Juno, um, and you know you're you're in great shape and thin. When you mentioned that you in your teens or late early twenties were morbidly obese, I, I find that hard to believe. But but obviously we can we can change a lot in one lifetime. Yeah, I think part of that was my military experience. You know, we have to remember that at that time, that was the Vietnam era. And rather than getting drafted, I went to the Reserve Officer Training Corps when I was at Loyola University. Mm. And I graduated with a commission as a second lieutenant. And by that time, uh, the war had started to wind down, and I got assigned to Germany, Mm. which was good duty. Unfortunately, I was involved in a terrorist bombing attack and in which 13 people were injured and uh, a gentleman who I knew uh, died in the attack. And I ended up with PTSD and a really, really um, some severe symptoms of that, which Mm. included overeating to really stuff my emotions. And I came out of the army weighing a hundred more pounds than I do right now. Wow. That's that's amazing. That's incredible. That's, that's, it's interesting to hear that you've made that connection, that it was a way to deal with the trauma and and that, that you were able to work through that. That's pretty amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Just so that the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Um, you like mangoes. What's your what's your favorite mango variety that that you're growing right now? Well, um, <laughs> that's that's kind of easy for me. Uh, <laughs> even though we've got 15 varieties here, my favorite. I'm looking at it right now, so I can tell you it's called <laughs> Zinc, and that's a that's an acronym uh, for Zil Indonesian Cambodian, and it's a wild hybrid. Wow. Uh, developed by the uh, the Zill family, which are they are the oldest family in Palm Beach County doing mangoes since like the nineteen the teens. 
Wow. Um, like a hundred over a hundred years ago. But at any rate, it's a fabulous mango, um, buttery, sweet, and you can eat the skin. And I eat it like an apple. You can eat Amazing. the skin. I, I've never actually thought about eating the mango skin. It actually tastes good. Some mangoes you can eat the skin. Uh-huh. Um, I always, no matter what variety I'm tasting, because in the summer down here, as you know, there's over 100 or 200 varieties you can sample. I always taste the skin. And if I like it, I'll eat it along with the rest of the mango. But most of them you can't. Yeah, that's that. That is news to me. I I I didn't never. I didn't know there was any mangoes you could actually do that with. That sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, when I when I read your bio, um, it helps give us some idea and as to who you've studied with. But who are some of the the people that you have studied with that have really helped shape your path and career where you are today? Well. Um you know, thank, thank you for that, because whenever I hear that question, I kind of get a shiver up and down my spine, and I'm getting goosebumps on my arms. <laughs> my mom and dad were the most amazing human beings that I've ever run into, and I have three siblings um, who are also totally amazing. Uh, my older sister, who I said, you know, helped me along the way, taught me my first massage routine. She's also a licensed massage therapist in Arizona, and my younger brother is an osteopath, um, <clears throat> cranial osteopath in Colorado, mm. and he and I are constantly talking about the work, and he's constantly sharing, you know, his insights from that community. Wow! My father wanted me to see the world, he wanted all of his kids to see the world, and pushed us to see the world, which all of us did. And my mother was just that's the most amazing human being, being so honest and straightforward with us all the time. So. They're my, my greatest teachers, and beyond that, I've had a lot of good luck with mentors, both male and female, along the line. Mm-hmm. Betty Dotson in New York City, she's a very famous sex educator. She's still alive. Um, she was living in that raw food commune at the time and was very helpful getting me straightened out with my sexuality, becoming sex positive, learning how to not hurt other people um, with my sexuality. Uh, in any way, shape, or form. And I really appreciated that. And the mentors I've had osteopathically and and at the Rolf Institute, Peter Melkier, who took me under his wing at the Rolf Institute. And there's just so many people. Stephen Porges, the most incredible human being that talks about the polyvagal system and the neurology of compassion. Um, I've had the great pleasure of actually treating him and getting to know him. Wow. There's just so many people. Um, I, I can, ima- I stand <laughs> on the shoulders of a lot of people. Todd, I can tell you that. <laughs> I mean, that one thing I really uh, appreciate about your teaching style and, um, the way you've been able to merge your, your passions between the, the world of meditation and spirituality with, the world of uh, body work and um, doctoral level of study. Um, it, and then, like you said, or having a 50-year span of career path, um, I've always appreciated that you, you have come in contact with so many educators and have been able to kind of share all of that in a, in a nice continuous stream. So 
that's that's impressive. That's something I look I, I look up to you for is is um I want to continue in, in my field and, and career and, and so when I when I see the way that you've done that I always <clears throat> leave your classes and courses feeling uplifted and inspired. So that's something um I really admire that you do. That's cool. Uh you you well, s- yeah, please. Please. Is there um uh you, you mentioned the military, um and you did mention that there was some PTSD. Do you feel like that experience was in large part what maybe helped fuel your passion for your career? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. Well, as one of my therapists once said, it was a God event um, because it really, I was headed towards being an attorney and going to law school when I was getting out of the military. And this, this situation with this terrorist bomb thing really helped me make a U-turn into the future. I came out so scattered and it was a perfect time, actually, when you think about it, to come out like that because the culture Mm -hmm. wasn't quite organized around getting it together. Nobody knew anything about PTSD at the time. And uh, it was just an amazing time. And I was fortunate that I had a vocation um, to also learn how to meditate because, you know, when you go to massage school, you learn about all this other stuff on the other side, you know, on this so-called fringe. And there was a lot of stuff happening in Miami in the 70s. There mm-hmm. were ashrams all over the place, some really gifted spiritual teachers. And I ended up living in an ashram, uh, and it was the Kundalini Yoga Ashram, Yogi Bhajan, mm-hmm. 3HO organization. They had an ashram in Miami. And that was really, I think, one of the, the results, I could say, of of the military and that whole experience I had, that it also pushed me um, into a vocation, into exploring, you know, the aptitude I had for spirituality and mm-hmm. learning about compassion. And it really started in Miami at the 3HO ashram. I even did massages on Yogi Bhajan whenever he would come to town. Oh, wow. It was quite an an experience. And <laughs> it's interesting because yeah. in, at that time, Todd, there was just all these spiritual teachers were around, like Pir Vilayat Khan, the very famous Sufi master. I actually sat at his feet. He, he would do these programs in Coconut Grove in Miami. Mm. Wow. And most of my roommates were Sufi dancers at the time. Um, and then I went to Boulder and, and I encountered, you know, all these Tibetan lamas. Tibetan medical doctors and started studying with them and and this wow, um, wow. it's just totally amazing uh, the experiences I've had and it's all integrated together it all gets to blend together because it's really about opening the heart and just getting in touch with the heart which is our job right now in the culture 
Yeah, that seems like the the important element these days is to see the the commonality of all these different teach teachings versus uh, picking apart and splitting hairs about the differences. So I, I that's cool, and I also like hearing about Miami because I always. Growing up, uh, I was born in the 70s, and so as I got into the 80s, I kind of fantasized the 60s, listening to 60s music and listening to The Grateful Dead and hearing all these stories <laughs> about the, the, the commune life of the 60s, and I thought, man, that, that sounds amazing. I wish I could have gone, I wish I was, was born in the 60s, and I don't often think of Miami as being, or, or how, that it would have been. Uh, a bit of a hub like that. I would, I would have, I always think of, you know, the Naropa scene in Boulder that you've been a part of and, or, you know, obviously like the Haight-Ashbury in California or potentially like upstate New York or, or New York city, maybe being a bit of a hub, but that's, I, I appreciate hearing those stories about Miami. That's really cool. Good. Yeah. It, it was, a, it was a, it was a happening place back when I was there. <laughs> Can um can you help us understand what craniosacral therapy is and even more so what biodynamic craniosacral therapy is? Well, um, craniosacral therapy because that was my first introduction. Uh, John Upledger, fabulous teacher, um, called me when I was just finishing my program at Europa Institute in Boulder and said, "I want you to become." A teacher of this work in my first uh, teacher training and basically as I reflect on all that I would say that craniosacral therapy is a methodology <clears throat> to affect the brain and central nervous system of the body and to really dramatically lower stress and increase the healing potential of the body so it's a it's a neurologically oriented therapy, mm. um, but it also can bring in some other adjunctive type therapies, fascial release, and so forth, uh, in order to make it more effective. And um, back in the 1990s, the osteopaths uh, generated uh, a term called biodynamic, um, referring to biodynamic embryology that was being taught um actually for the last hundred years in Europe, but it's actually brought to craniosacral therapy um, two basic understandings. First of all, that biodynamic um, is a study of perception. So it allows anybody that's doing craniosacral therapy to really be able to deepen their perception mm -hmm. and all the language that goes around with that. And I don't want to bore you with, with all that coded language that's used in the cranial community, but it's really about slowing down <clears throat> and stopping and mm. becoming still. Mm. And how do we experience that? And how is that effective as a healing method? Mm. And I think the second thing for me with biodynamic work, Dr. Jealous, the founder of it in osteopathy, would say that it's a study of wholeness. And for me, it's, it's a study of embodiment because within our own body, there is a whole, and there is a whole that we can relate, you know, throughout the entire universe. And we can actually feel that because it's the way in which we integrate the mind, you know, the body, you know, with the spirit. And it's that part of osteopathy and that part of manual therapy that speaks to that, that level of integration with mm. perception, wholeness, and embodiment. 
That's awesome. Have you, and you spent quite a bit of time teaching after you studied, is that you, you studied with at Upledger Institute and then did you start teaching craniosacral therapy? Well, uh, I was certified in their first instructor training in December of 1986, mm. but I had already begun teaching it because I had apprenticed with an osteopath out in Boulder oh, wow. for several years. Uh, he was an original uh, student of William Sutherland, and he was retired and he wanted some rolfing work, and he said, why don't I just teach you the cranial method? Have you ever heard of that? And I said, well, kind of vaguely, but not really. Mm. So for a couple of years, I was getting lessons on the cranial concept and, and what Sutherland, the founder of the cranial concept in the 1930s and 40s, was saying and doing. And I was learning that work. And it was interesting because the Rolf Institute invited John Upledger to give a talk at their annual meeting. And I was assigned to be hosting John Upledger, pick him up at the airport, get uh -huh, him to the, uh -huh. to the whole thing and make sure he was comfortable. And I got to know him and he asked me to be on his, his teaching team. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Awesome guy. Uh, so you've, you've worked for a long time as a rolfer and then you go, you get involved in the cranial sacral world just so that the listeners can appreciate perhaps the variations in those two approaches, how would you, how would you explain maybe the difference between Rolfing and then a cranial sacral therapy session? Um, well, I think just to keep it simple, I mean, the, the, the Rolfing work um, is probably more popularly known as myofascial release or, or fascial release technique. And mm -hmm. usually that involves a degree of pressure in order to create a level of stretch within the fascial system, the, this incredible network we have that holds us together mm. and our muscles and so forth. And in order to do that level of stretch, uh, it requires a certain level of pressure. Whereas the cranial work is not oriented around pressure. It's around perceiving fluid flow and fluid density. Mm. So you're just really... Uh, passive, and your hands are very afferent. Uh, they're just sensing what's going on. Mm. And then periodically, there might be an intention uh, to facilitate or help something move. But in general, one is light and one is a little heavier. So the fascial rolfing work is a little heavier, and the, the cranial work is definitely much lighter. And they work together. I did um, integrated sessions with rolfing and cranial work for years mm. before I completely let go of the rolfing, except every now and then my wife wants something <laughs> released and it requires <laughs> a firm elbow in the erector scene. Yeah. So. <laughs> You're like, all right, all right, I'll resort, I'll resort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, and so um, we've touched upon some of your experience in the bodywork world and you you've also been practicing meditation for quite some time can you can you give us some insight into what you have learned and or unlearned over the years of practicing well 
yes, I could, I could take a, I could take a stab at that. I mean, the then <laughs> approach would be to say, I've learned nothing. But <laughs> <laughs> After that long but pause, I was be- like, uh oh, here comes a good answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the Zen answer, but I, I don't, I'm not sure that's a good answer for, for the listener. Um, I've, I've thought about that a lot. You know, I, the reason I lived in these ashrams and all that, as I mentioned earlier, is I really feel that I had a vocation to meditate, mm. just to learn to meditate. And I stayed with the, the 3HO, the Kundalini Yoga people, and it was it was just too much for me. Um, I left, and then I got involved with Transcendental Meditation, and I got very bored with that because it's a mantra practice that you repeat non-verbally. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't doing it for me. And I just kept searching for the next, you know, thing that, that would really satisfy this vocation, this, this calling that I was having mm. to learn to meditate. So it wasn't until I got to Boulder and my girlfriend at the time um, was at Naropa and she said, why don't you come do this weekend? And the instruction, the meditation instruction is for free. So I trundle off to a Buddhist temple, which I'd never been to in my life. Mm. And sure enough, I was assigned an instructor. I was given the basic instruction. I went into the shrine room, and the moment I sat on the cushion within a minute, I was home. Yeah. It was the, the most extraordinary experience of feeling at home, at home with myself, at home with my body, at home with my mind, my emotions. And it's it's been a role since then, and that was oh, 1981. Nice, that's really cool. I mean, I, that makes me think that it obviously is important to be open to trying different styles and techniques until you do get that that feeling that you mentioned, where you you're like, okay, this is where I want to settle in for a while. Absolutely, that's that's what I would recommend to people. You know, meditation is not for everybody. Um, there's so much research coming out about it right now. And it turns out that 25% of people that try to meditate, um, it's not good for them. They get anxious. So already 25% of people that are out there searching for stuff, you know, to meditate, they leave it because of, you know, it generates anxiety. But as you said, there's so, so many meditation styles and techniques. I would just say, keep going until you find one that you feel home, you feel home in your body, you feel home in your mind, that you've got a way to, it's as if you're sitting looking out a window and you're just watching the traffic go by. It's that feeling that your mind, our minds are so active and so busy Mm -hmm. that you can just observe it and not react to it, Mm -hmm. uh, which is what really gets us into trouble. Mm -hmm. And there's many techniques that can afford that. Nice. I like that. That's a good answer. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, having, ha- I've had the opportunity to take some biodynamic cranial sacral courses with you, and I've, I've also had the, the pleasure of being able to take some meditation classes with you. Um, and something that's really uh, blown me away and, and, and also each time... I get a chance to practice with you on either side of those fields 
is uh, it seems to me that you've done an incredible job of like merging the essence of both from the bodywork side being attentive and being able to use the subtlety of palpation and touch to affect some sort of change and then also the from the meditation side being able to um, be very attentive and present and just observe. Um, did that happen naturally? Was that something that you had to, um, like a light bulb went off and you said, I'm going to now, you know, merge these two together or, you know, how, how did that evolve for you? Uh, I, I think as I said earlier, you know, I had a vocation and the vocation was to learn about compassion and, and compassion through meditation practice. And so I also think that everybody in this, in the field that we're in, Todd, has a gift. You know, when somebody comes to my class, I'm teaching from my gift and I'm not trying to give my gift that I've developed to somebody else, I'm trying to help nurture everyone in the class to discover their gift mm. so that they can then integrate their own life experience, however that unfolds. Everybody's had a crazy life. Mm. I'm trying to write my autobiography, and I'm lost. It's like, oh, my God, how did I get through that? <laughs> what, what, what was I thinking of? You know, it's like unbelievable. So we all come at it from a different point of view. And I think our teachers need to show us how to develop that gift mm. of integration, of embodiment, and the embodiment of safety so that whatever we're doing and what, however we're integrating life experience, that it's, it feels safe and it projects safety to others. Mm. That's the world we live in right now is the need for safety, very deep embodied safety. Yeah, it's so true. That's awesome. That's cool. I like how that that does merge together wonderfully. I like that. Well, you know, given the current environment, what we're working with now with uh, the, you know, a new virus or, you know, it seems like it's a new virus, uh, social distancing. Um, also, I think something else that in our field that seems prevalent Maybe it's been going on all along, and, but it seems to be that maybe people are being held accountable, but there's there's a lot of different teachers that are kind of falling from the pedestal, so to speak. And um, do you, uh, where do you see the future for massage therapists in terms of like personally as a body worker, I haven't done any massage for... Uh, a little over three weeks now since we had to close our studio space and, and practice social distancing. So that's been an interesting experience. And then, and then from the meditation world where you come across um, maybe a lot of respect for someone, then you find out that maybe that something has changed and shifted to where you're wondering if you should have had respect in that person. <laughs> uh, where, where do you see the where we're at and where can we go? What, what can our future be? Well, I, I think you've got two questions there. I mean, the first question is um, everybody has a certain degree of anxiety and fear. Uh, and if we're in Florida and the state of Florida has told all of the licensed massage therapists that we're not essential, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
that we have to manage our concern around that. And I have reached out to various people within the Florida State Massage Therapy Association um, and just to keep my, my finger on the pulse around all that. Mm. But the truth is I'm not worried about that because as body workers and as alternative healthcare practitioners, we are going to be in great demand. We are already in great demand. We're on a pause and we need to, to rest up and go through our own recovery cycle because when this is over, there's going to be a shift and we're going to be as busy as we want to be. But it leads into your second question. And the second question is, if we're projecting and we need to project safety to people, so it's not going to be just about the technique we use with our hands. Mm -hmm. It's going to be about the presence that we develop through our meditation, through our yoga practice, through our pranayama practice, whatever our practice is that grounds us and builds our spiritual capacities is what we're going to need to project. And if there is a lack of integrity, if you've got an instructor that's having sex with clients, which is, that is another pandemic in our community. Mm. I just want to name that. I want to call that out. I'm tired of seeing it. I want to get as far away from that as possible. Mm-hmm. which has taken a lot of effort on my part because I'm, I'm just tired of it yeah. and move in a direction that's going to be, to be most helpful to provide the felt sense of safety to our clients and others. Mm. All the neurologists that I study with, they say the same thing. Nobody is going to heal until they feel safe neurologically, mm. meaning safe in a social situation. Do I feel safe with this therapist? And those that, lack integrity and those that, that cannot project that level of safety are not going to make it, but they'll go into another profession because humans are about adaptability. Mm. And although you and I can see a lot of pain and suffering going on in the planet right now, at every level of culture, there is an adaptation going on. We can adapt. We can get better. We will be better from this yeah. if we help others be safe. That's awesome, Michael. I really appreciate that. I, I, I needed to hear that for sure because I've been having uh, you know these questions roll around in my mind. I do have a strong sense of faith that we're going to come through this better, stronger. Um, so but I, I really I really appreciate you pointing out the importance for projecting safety and embodying safety and uh, so that that's that was great. Thank you. <laughs> I needed that. Yeah, you're you're welcome. Um, well, it's, it's yeah. Todd. It's an incredible time, not only for that, but for for you and I and for everybody else to clarify the values with which we want to lead our life yeah. in the future. Yeah. When we when you see two thousand people every day in the United States now are dying. We've got to think about death and dying. How do we want to be? How do we want that to be for us? This is a huge issue. We have the opportunity to clarify our values. And as Jack Kornfield said, we have an opportunity right now to make a vow. How do we want to be in the future? How do we want this to turn out for us and Mm -hmm. for others? Mm -hmm. And make a vow of it and, and clarify our values whether it's death and dying or whatever it might be and how we manage suffering in ourselves and others. This is our time to make that vow. Mm. 
Yeah. I think you're right. It feels that way. I definitely, I definitely have gone through a little bit of, um, uh, growth. I've gone, I've, I've definitely experienced, a incredible level of panic <laughs> over, <laughs> over like a, a two day period. I can, I can actually give you a date. <laughs> I remember when it was. And, um, and then the process of processing it and to where I am now, I feel like I feel incredibly positive about where, what this, how this is helping me to see what I was doing, the, the speed that the treadmill was on. Like, I think I had my treadmill on pretty, the speed was up and the speed got turned down, uh, a little bit lower. And, um, it just makes you kind of wonder like, gosh, I was setting that speed. But then I also feel sometimes that there's this, the pressures to meet the demands of economy I think is what tends to push that speed faster. Um, so I, I don't know. I found it to be so valuable to have this opportunity to on a large scale, everybody's had to turn that speed down, if not all the way down to zero, but at least down a couple notches. Um, it's, it's been really amazing. I have to say So I'm trying to definitely try to make the most of it <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm glad you're feeling the same way or that you're, you're feeling like you're it's you know right when we got on the phone together you you, you just your first thing was like man I'm this is good like I'm really enjoying this this is great so I love that I really appreciate that about you <laughs> um there's a lot of creative energy coming up you know within all of this and and there's a lot of feeling yeah I didn't invite these feelings but they arise and so as they say in Zen, what I'm learning is I've got enough, and I'm learning what is enough. Yeah. And maybe that's one of the, the principal yeah. things we can learn from this whole experience, yeah. that we've got enough. And what is really enough? Ooh, great question, right? Well, how, how, would yeah. you, how would you answer that question? Like, what do you think the the... the I mean, I've been, I've, I've been mulling over that quite a bit and I just keep coming back to food, clothing and shelter. I know that's like the basics. That almost sounds a little bit lame because it's kind of like the food pyramid. It's like you need this, that and the other to survive. And we know that we can push the boundaries on, you know, our traditional thinking about what, you know, from a nutrition side is absolutely necessary. Um, and then so, yeah, I keep, I mean, obviously I would, I would bring into the food, clothing, and shelter category um, that, that what you said about safety feels like this new, comp or I want to say new, this component that is uh, one of our essentials. Um, but uh, what, about how, what, would, what do you think, Michael, if you were to really boil it down? I mean, if we were down to just, all right, I got food and I got a roof over my head and I and I'm, and I'm warm. I have some clothes. Uh, I think that that could be enough, right? Yep. Why not? I mean, Why but not? on the other hand, you've got children. I don't have children. I yeah. don't have that concern yeah. about their safety, their schooling, what needs to happen for them and what type of income needs to be generated to, you know, facilitate their growth and learning until yeah. they're out on their own. Yeah. So I understand that you have, 
you know, more pressures. And I don't want to sound like I'm oversimplifying it. I understand. But on the other hand, I, I want to reiterate what you said, that I think all of us, including myself, have been on that treadmill. And it's on high speed. And I'm telling you what, I'm sitting here at home for the last three weeks going, <laughs> I like this. I, I, I like this a lot. <laughs> I know. Have you had that thought a little bit that maybe they'll stretch it out another month. I know I probably shouldn't be saying that, but you know, like <laughs> maybe they'll just give us one more month. <laughs> you have to stay home one more month. A part of me might celebrate. I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely true. You know, my wife and I have been sitting here going for the last two years, we've said the same thing. We haven't had a decent vacation. We haven't had the, the three weeks off that we promised each other. Here we are. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you, Mike. That's awesome. Well, you've, you've had a, the opportunity to, um, traverse a, a a nice stint of, um, pursuing your passion and your career. If you could go back to your 20 year old self, when you learned your first massage routine and, (laughs) Just for like living day by day, could you? Is there any advice you? Is there if you could go back and visit? <laughs> sorry, if you could give yourself some advice, what what would what would that be? Todd, <laughs> sorry, it's good to have a good laugh. So I'm glad you're feeling the same way. <laughs> even even if I had advice to give to my twenty year olds. He wouldn't listen. No, forget it. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's so true. God, that, that hits the nail on the head right there. Well, awesome, Michael. Um, would you be open to leading us through uh, meditation here to, to kind of bring our, our podcast session to a close? Sure, sure. That'd be great. All right. That'd be great. Actually, I think that having a good laugh is just like one of the best <laughs> meditations you can have. Um, uh, I, I but <laughs> I was thinking that um, all of us, I don't know how much time you spend every day, you know, trying to keep up with all this. I mean, I feel obligated to a certain degree. I have to keep up with it. And that is that as we sit here and we contemplate, the enormity of what's happening on the planet, we're basically taking in a lot of bad news, um, death and dying and suffering and all of that. And with a compassion meditation, as we take this in visually, if we're reading, if we take this in because we're thinking about it, maybe there's somebody we know that has died of this virus or somebody that's sick, and we take that in, it's important that we just pause, as Pema Chodron said, and give back out something that's good to the world. And from a compassion point of view, we're, we're taking all of this information in and transforming it into our heart with our breath. So we, we link with our inhalation. And then we exhale, and we can just exhale a sense of light uh, just a beautiful light, whatever color, you know, might come to the listener's mind. 
and just exhale this lightness to whoever um, the people we're living with, our partner, our family, all the first responders. I'm praying a lot for the first responders. So I want to exhale and send out all this incredible courage and lightness to all the first responders, the ambulance drivers, the morgue operators, the nurses, the doctors in the ICU units. I mean, just amazing the work they're doing and thinking about them and giving to them a sense of lightness. And that's what I would offer for a meditation. As long as we're taking in the bad, we've got to give out the good and let our heart transform that. And we can practice that anytime. Pema Children calls it um, compassion on the spot. Where sometimes we just, we hear something, we, we see the next number, 2,000 dead, and we, we gasp, and that's the inhalation of taking it in. But let's exhale and just be mindful of giving out and sending out well-being to other people in whatever form that is, a light color, a wonderful meal, but something simple that we can just give and then the way compassion meditation ends in Buddhism is that you always then offer that to the entire planet. You bathe the entire planet in a lightness and a well-being. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much, Mike. I really enjoyed having this opportunity to talk with you and it's always such an uh, such a pleasure and thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to uh very to, welcome to share with us and um i'm just so excited and that that i know we'll have more opportunities to get together and um and just thank you so much I, we really appreciate it thank you good let's stay in touch Todd. all right have a great day take care you too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Native Yoga Toddcast. We really appreciate it and we hope you enjoyed. Remember that if you'd like to learn more about upcoming classes, workshops, teacher trainings, and our online yoga studio, all of which you can access at nativeyogacenter.com, your support is greatly appreciated. Have a wonderful day.